0: The History Channel original podcast. History this week, June tenth, eighteen sixteen. I'm Sally Helm. Lightning above the lake. A group of famous friends is gathered at a villa in Switzerland. The poet Lord Byron has rented the place. He just moved in today. His guests include his lover, Claire Godwin, his doctor, John Polidori, and also the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley, and Mary Godwin, who is Shelley's lover. It's a summer alpine vacation, but there is no sun sparkling on the lake. 1816 has been unusually dark and dreary. Some are actually calling it the year without summer. A volcanic eruption in Indonesia has spewed so much ash and lava and sulfur into the air that a massive cloud is drifting across the globe and distorting the weather. There's frost when it should be warm, dark clouds when the day would normally be bright. And so, these Pleasure seeking poets are stuck inside, trying to pass the time. They've gotten their hands on a book of ghost stories, which feels right for the gloomy setting. And after a couple of days of rain, Lord Byron comes up with an idea, a challenge. He says, We will each write a ghost story. At that moment, Lord Byron is the most famous writer in the English-speaking world. He might reasonably expect to win his own challenge. But not to be underestimated is 18-year-old Mary Godwin, who's about to have an idea so ghostly that it will tip over into horror. The title of her story remains iconic to this day, Frankenstein. Today, a monster is born. How did Mary Godwin draw from her life to write this famous novel? And why have we now been talking about her creation for more than 200 years? Mary Godwin learns to read by tracing the letters on a tombstone.
1: Her dad takes her to the graveyard where her mom is buried and teaches her how to read, this is a true story, on her mom's grave.
0: Wow. (laughs) I know. It's true. It really is a true story. This is author Charlotte Gordon. She says it is almost too fitting because the works that Mary will later write are so much about death. The monster at the center of her most famous novel, Frankenstein, is made of human cadavers. And Mary's own birth was haunted by death. Her mother died of complications after the delivery. Not only that, the two shared a first name. So when little Mary traces the letters on that tombstone, she is actually tracing her own name. So it's Mary Godwin, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. And her mother's most famous accomplishment is chiseled right there on the headstone. Author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Mary Wollstonecraft was one of the first writers in English to advocate for women's rights to money, education, and independence. So little Mary's first words are her mom's name, which is her name, and vindication, and woman. It's not like a dog and cat, you know? When she was alive, not everyone had been ready for Mary Wollstonecraft's ideas, to put it mildly. She was called a whore. I think a
1: hyena in petticoats is one of the famous horrible things they said. But Mary
0: Godwin had been brought up to revere her dead mother. Mary Wollstonecraft's books were all over the shelves. There was a gigantic portrait of her on the wall, pregnant with Mary, perhaps it's no wonder that by the time Mary is a teen, she has embraced her mother's example.
1: Mary had already decided from the time she was a little girl that she was going to carry forward the revolutionary ideas
0: of her mom. Her father, William Godwin, is a radical in his own right, a famous anarchist. They get along really well But Mary does not get along with her stepmother, who favors her daughter, Jane, Mary's stepsister, over Mary. Jane's mother signs her up for French and singing lessons. Meanwhile, Mary and her stepmom can't stop fighting. It gets so bad that Mary is sent away to Scotland. But if the plan is for that trip to calm her down and make her follow the rules, no. Scotland
1: during this time period. It would be like going to San Francisco during hate ashbury It was a radical hotbed of revolutionaries who were protesting the English
0: government. Mary feels right at home. She buys a tartan, the plaid cloth symbolizing Scottish freedom, kind of like a tie-dyed t-shirt in
1: 1970. And she comes back to England and she wears the tartan all the time as like a declaration of what a radical she is.
0: It's back in England that the 16-year-old Mary meets a 21-year-old poet who, like her, wants to remake the world. He is Percy Bysshe Shelley. And when he meets Mary, here's what he sees. She was small, but she
1: had reddish-goldish hair that was apparently one of her great beauties. And she was very, very, very pale. And there's descriptions of her during
0: this time as being kind of... Magical looking. Mary's father invites Percy to dinner at the family home in London, where Percy gets a sense for what this pale, red-haired teenager is like. She
1: was quiet, but intense. There was nothing shy about her. But she did not speak unless she had something to say. And Percy Shelby, who's he at this moment? You know, the first word that comes to mind is lunatic. He had been kicked out of college for atheism. He had written a whole screed against Christianity. He too was at constant war with his parents. Percy is a philosopher, a poet, and not all that down to earth. He had great ideas like, let's put revolutionary messages in glass bottles and throw them into the water. And then they'll wash up on beaches and people will be inspired. This is classic Percy. Like, incredibly idealistic and not a practical bone in his body. Mary is into it. His hair was a little too long. He often wore his shirt open so you could see his sexy throat and, you know, chest. To older people, he looked a little sketchy, I think. But to a young woman, he looked super exciting. So when she meets Percy, it's pretty
0: much love at first sight for her. And she lets him know by taking him to her favorite place, her mother's grave. She says
1: to him, I love you. We are soulmates.
0: At this moment, June of 1814, Mary and Percy are in the grip of a powerful movement called Romanticism. In some ways, Romanticism is a reaction against the Enlightenment, with its emphasis on reason and order. The Romantics, on the other hand, Prize things like individual conscience and imagination. Their art pulses with emotion. It exults in the wildness of nature. And it doesn't shy away from the problem of death. So, Mary and Percy are standing in a graveyard with her declaration, We are soulmates, hanging in the air. It's kind of the most romantic situation possible. Percy looks at Mary and says, I feel the same. They are in love. Now the only thing left to figure out is how to move forward as a couple. That is not going to be easy. Percy has an estranged wife and two children. Mary knows this. She says, because you're married, we will have to run away together. And that's what they do the couple runs off to Paris, which creates a scandal. Mary's family members are not happy, except for one person, her stepsister Jane, the pampered sibling with the French and the singing lessons. She actually joins them in Paris. When they return to London, she changes her name from Jane to Claire because she thinks it sounds romantic. And eventually, she gets tired of being the third wheel,
1: Claire wanted her own poet. She wanted to have an exciting affair. And there was probably no one more famous during this time period than Lord Byron. Lord
0: Byron. A hugely acclaimed poet. A true celebrity. Also known for his shocking personal life. He was really a scandalous guy. Byron has had countless affairs. And at least one child out of wedlock. He's had relationships with men and women and an incestuous dalliance with his half-sister. One of his former lovers called him mad, bad, and dangerous to know.
1: He was another rule breaker and extraordinarily handsome and
0: charismatic. Just what Claire is looking for. She propositions him by letter. And he's like, sure. So they begin an affair. To Byron, it's just a fling. But Claire has other ideas. So she makes some plans. She finds out that Byron is going to go to Geneva for the summer. Then she convinces Percy and Mary, who now calls herself Mary Shelley, to bring their baby son on their own vacation with her to Lake Geneva. She has a feeling that Byron will be interested in the Shelleys, this up-and-coming poet and his mistress, the daughter of famous radicals. So, In May of 1816, they all travel to Switzerland. Lord Byron shows up in typical style. He was
1: obsessed with Napoleon. So when he arrives in Geneva, he's got this carriage that he has
0: designed to look exactly like Napoleon's carriage. He's also brought his menagerie. Eight dogs, some monkeys, a falcon, And tagging along is a young man named Dr. John Polidori. He's supposed
1: to be keeping track of Byron to make sure Byron is writing. And he's kind of an unhappy fellow. Like, he wants to be like them, but kind of isn't. And is really put in this place
0: of being this kind of uncomfortable observer. So what is the vibe around this party in Lake Geneva? How are people talking about them? There was
1: one hotel that all the English usually stayed at in Geneva. And so that's where they're all staying initially.
0: A hotel where the British aristocracy come to see and be seen. And they find this group scandalous. Adulterers. Ruined women. Poets. The newspapers
1: call this group of friends the League of Incest. And every time the two young women enter a room, everyone is quiet. People turn their backs on them. It's
0: horrible. So the whole group says, in effect... Well, if you don't want us, we don't want you. They leave the hotel and decamp to a pair of vacation homes across the lake. They're not far apart, 100 yards apart, and they spend all their time together. But the aristocratic hotel guests are not done snooping. They actually set up a telescope to keep those poets in their disapproving eye until storms sweep in and obscure the view. Inside those vacation homes, Under threatening skies, one of history's most famous monsters will be born. June 1816, the year without summer.
1: It rains and it rains and it rains. And, you know, you cannot keep
0: a bunch of romantic poets all cooped up without something happening. It is during one of those dreary days that Byron throws down his famous challenge. We will each write a ghost story.
1: They're really trying to create works that provoke strong feelings in their readers. And one of the strongest feelings that a reader can have is fear
0: and awe and trembling. Blank pages on desks, ink pens in hand. Everyone gets to work. Byron does start to write
1: something, and it turns into Manfred, which is a long poem about a magician. And Percy starts to write something which turns into his Prometheus Unbound. But it's Mary who starts writing immediately and really does come up with a story that will scare audiences for hundreds of years after. Oh, so she wins
0: the ghost story challenge,
1: we would say. Oh, my God. Yeah, the two men don't even write a ghost story.
0: For days, Mary writes. She's totally absorbed by her story, which is about making dead flesh live again.
1: She writes, and then she'll pass the notebook over to Percy, and he will make corrections or changes, and she'll either accept them or not.
0: When Percy and Byron read her early pages, they say, you're on to something. She works feverishly on her manuscript as the atmosphere around her starts seeping into her scenes. The dark, the cold. In the evening, she's gripped by Dr. Polidori's reading of lectures on the life force. And she ventures out into the Alps, then pours what she sees there into her journal. And so we have these amazing descriptions
1: of the journey in the mountains, through the snowstorm of the trees, those passages, almost unchanged, go right into the novel.
0: Never was a scene more awfully desolate. The trees in these regions are incredibly large and stand in scattered clumps over the white wilderness.
1: This bleak and forlorn and powerful landscape where human beings seem small and nature is very, very, very big.
0: In Mary's book, one of those small human beings tries to bend nature to his will. The main character is Dr. Victor Frankenstein. A very
1: brilliant young man who gets attracted to the occult arts and sciences. He realizes no one has ever created life and that's what he wants to do. And he reads and he studies and he keeps his ambition a secret. He goes into graveyards and digs up body parts, sews them together, and using electricity,
0: creates a man who Mary calls the creature. The creature is brought to life in this unnatural, horrifying fashion. But in his heart, he's innocent. And right from the start, he feels the world's cruelty. Dr. Frankenstein
1: takes one look at the creature and runs away from him. So the creature, whose eyes are just opening, doesn't see anyone there. He's like, where's my dad? And he starts going out into the countryside looking for his father, looking for love, looking for education.
0: He's lost, like a child without a parent. And here, again, Mary is drawing from her own life. Mary always felt implicated
1: about the death of her mom. You know, she herself wouldn't have existence if her mom hadn't given birth to her. And yet her mom dies because she gives birth to her.
0: It's this sort of horrible collision of birth and death. A collision that she'd experienced again just a few years before. After Paris, Mary and Percy had a baby, Clara, who was born prematurely.
1: The child only lives a few days and breaks Mary's heart by
0: dying. Mary has been plagued by dreams of Clara for years. She wrote in her journal, "Dreamt that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold, and that we rubbed it by the fire and it lived. I awakened, find no baby. I think about the little thing all day. There's this tremendous yearning to heal death." You can feel it all through the pages of Frankenstein. But the creature himself yearns to live. He's been abandoned by his father. But then he stumbles across some possible friends. He comes across a little cottage
1: off in the wilderness somewhere. And he's by now learned that people are scared when they see him. So he hides himself from the cottagers but he listens every night as they gather around the fire and read to one another and talk, and he loves them all so much.
0: So much that he resolves to thank them in person. I persuaded myself that when they should become acquainted with my admiration of their virtues, they would overlook my personal deformity. Could they turn from their door one, however monstrous, who solicited their compassion? and friendship.
1: Finally, he gets up his nerve and he's hoping that they will accept him and he starts bringing them little presents, starts cutting them wood and leaving it by the doorstep and one day finally goes and says, hello I'm your friend and they run screaming away and he is so mad and so hurt that he burns the cottage down
0: Mary writes movingly about the creature's sorrow. She's very
1: concerned about the cruelty of man to man, how we treat people who are not like ourselves, like herself, in fact, and Percy. They have been treated with incredible cruelty, as was her mother. Her mother was exiled. So when the creature is shunned by everybody because of what he looks like, we're meant to feel sorry for the creature.
0: Mary shares that feeling of exile with other women
1: of her time. It is an incredibly repressive time to be a woman. Women have zero rights, and if they do rebel, they end up experiencing social exile or tremendous poverty, etc.
0: Mary feels all this especially keenly in the autumn of 1816, when she returns to London to revise her manuscript. But as she is finishing her ghost story, there is a plague of female
1: suicides. The authorities in London instituted a law where they will give rewards to people if they will stand by the Thames and look out for young women who keep flinging themselves into the river.
0: This epidemic sweeps up two women that Mary knows personally. One of them is Percy's estranged wife. Mary is filled with guilt at their deaths. I often feel that Frankenstein itself, the text is
1: haunted by these women. And Mary herself says that, that she has these dreams
0: of both women and feels their ghosts are in the book. Charlotte Gordon says, the ideas that Mary Wollstonecraft fought for, the vindication of the rights of women, she thinks those ideas show up in the novel Frankenstein. This is actually a
1: book about women. People think I'm crazy when I say that because all of the women end
0: up getting killed by the creature. The women in the novel are pushed to the sidelines or killed, while the man at the center, Victor Frankenstein, plays God by creating life on his own. The result is a creature who's motherless, like Mary was.
1: I would say this is this a dystopian novel about a world without mothers and a world without strong women. Unchecked male ambition, says Mary Shelley, is going to wreak
0: havoc on the world. Frankenstein is a scientist and a callous, absent parent. He's a horrible father, and he's also a
1: horrible inventor, says Mary. What you're supposed to do when you invent something is prepare the world for its arrival and then, you know, shepherd it into the
0: world yourself so that no harm can be done. Frankenstein does not do that. And the shunned creature strikes back. The creature starts his path of revenge.
1: And he's by now figured out who his father is. And he goes to where Dr. Frankenstein grew up and he kills members of Frankenstein's family. And when Frankenstein realizes that this monster is chasing him, they have a big confrontation up in the Alps. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me?
0: The creature says he'll stop the killing if his creator exhumes more body parts and stitches them into a companion.
1: The creature wants Frankenstein to make him a partner because he's so lonely. Please, please, please make me a female creature. And Frankenstein agrees, and then he suddenly thinks, wait, if I make a female creature, I will have cursed the world with these dreadful monsters, and I can't do it, and that enrages the creature even more. If you refuse,
0: I will glut the more of
1: death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. Ultimately, the creature ends up killing everybody who was important to
0: Frankenstein, including his bride. The book ends with the creature and the doctor chasing each other across frozen wastes at the far end of the world. By this point, they're both human and both monsters. Frankenstein is published in 1818. Its author is anonymous. And Charlotte Gordon says it is not an instant classic. When the book is
1: read, there are some people who love it. If you're a novelist and a romantic, you're probably going to like it, but it certainly didn't sell many copies. But then it's mounted as a play.
0: The book becomes a smash hit when it's on the stage. Some people hate the play. They say it's ungodly the way this scientist takes on the power of human creation. They're like, that power should belong to God. And when Mary reveals herself as the author in 1821, many people are stunned. A woman wrote this monstrous thing? Decades later, when the book is recognized as a masterpiece, some scholars even assume that Percy must have written it. Of course, He didn't. It is Mary's ghosts that haunt the novel's pages, and her writing that has made the story endure. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch please shoot us an email at our email address, history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Charlotte Gordon, author of Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. The voice actors you heard throughout this episode are Jessica Gillick and David Meller. This episode was produced by Corinne Wallace. It was sound designed by Brian Flood and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Chloe Weiner, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is Mikami Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hey, if you are in crisis, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by calling 988 or go to 988lifeline.org. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved.